Uh, now let's dig into Romans 15. As you know, last week we began talking about matters of conscience, and we're continuing that conversation this morning. And what we discovered a couple weeks ago in our family is that these matters of conscience, the subject that is brought up in Romans 14 through 15, is applicable even for a first grader. Uh, if, if you know my son Brooks, our oldest son, then you know that he is a rule follower. He likes to do things the right way, right? Typical first child. And he, he comes home from school about two weeks ago, and you can tell that he, something's weighing on him. He, he's, kind of, he's kind of got something on his mind. And so he, he asks Abby, uh, why, why do we dress up on Halloween and go around and get candy? And you're like, well, because we think it's fun. Like, what's going on? Well, well, here's what happened. So uh, at some point throughout the course of the day, his friends were talking about who they were going to be for Halloween. And, you know, he's torn between either Leonardo from the Ninja Turtles or Spider-Man or Joe Burrow. So, you know, he, that's, he's, he's just kind of working through that, right? That's the main thing on his mind. And then one of his friends and midway through the conversation says, well, if your family does anything for Halloween, then you worship the devil. And so, I mean, immediately that like strikes a nerve with, you know, my son who has a very sensitive conscience. And so, I mean, he, he comes home and he's like, hey, like, guys, I mean, you should have told me this, you know? So, I mean, he's, he's like, what's going on here? So, uh, so we, we were like trying to figure out why it's, why it's upsetting him, why it's on his mind. And he's like, well, you know, my friend said if you do anything for Halloween, you worship the, the, the. <laughs> like mouths it, you know, like doesn't want to. And so we're like, we're like, oh, okay, okay, okay. We're like, well, well, buddy, that's actually, oddly enough, uh, that's a matter of conscience. And, uh, you know, there, there are some families that feel more like ours, which this is just, you know, something you do during the fall. And, you know, it's, it's a harmless thing where you go and you can, like, meet your neighbors. People, you know, come by your house. You pass out candy. You dress up as something. But, but there are other, other families that don't feel the same way. And, you know, because of their convictions, they just they don't want to be a, a part of that at all. Um, but it's, it's not one of those issues where you're sinning if you do it or, or you're doing, doing the right thing if you don't. And he's like, oh, okay, okay, okay. And, uh, and Abby said, well, what'd you tell him, Brooks? And he said, well, I told him we love Jesus, candy, and wearing costumes. <laughs> We're like, yeah, that's basically our family's viewpoint on it. We love Jesus, candy, and wearing costumes. So see you at Trunk or Treat next, next Friday. Um, <laughs> but, but there are matters of conscience where godly Christians would say, I just, I, I agree to disagree, or I, I don't see eye to eye there. And we know that that extends par, far past whatever you decide to do on October 31st. Uh, you know, I thought it, it might be interesting to just ask you a series of questions, and depending on where you fall on the issue, to just have you raise your hand. I'm just kidding. That would be a terrible <laughs> idea, wouldn't it? But, but listen to these questions and just kind of think through them briefly, but, but critically and biblically, no, no raising of hands needed. Should you watch R-rated movies or listen to music that isn't Christian? Should you send your kids to public or private school or choose homeschool? Uh, who is the breadwinner in your home? Should mothers work full time? If the wife has a well-paying job, should the husband be the primary caretaker for the children? If you are a day trader, 
where is the line between gambling and making investments with calculated risk? Should you drink alcohol or should you abstain altogether? What is the dress code for church? At what point is it permissible to kiss the person that you're dating? Second date, engagement, or should you wait until the wedding officiant says you may now kiss your bride? Should you spend money on things that are wants and not needs, luxury items? If you could buy a yacht, should you? Should you attend the wedding of a couple that has been living together before marriage? If you're unhappy with your body image, is plastic surgery an option? Is it okay to use methods of family planning, such as birth control? How old should your child be when they get a phone? What apps should they have access to? How much student loan debt is still considered responsible and wise? Are vaccinations required? Is recycling a matter of stewarding creation? And finally, perhaps the most difficult, should you eat leftover Chick-fil-A on Sundays? I don't know. None of these questions are easily answered, right? Some of them might make you squirm. I mean, how many of you would wanna throw one of those out as an icebreaker in your missional community group this week? Like, you, you don't wanna do that. Why? Because these are matters of conscience. And while I encourage you to think biblically and critically about every single one of these issues, the purpose of this sermon is not to walk through them and reach unanimous agreement. That's, that's not what God is calling to us to here. You see, the primary theme of these first seven verses in Romans 15 is that your unity in Christ is more important than your unanimity on these issues. Your unity in Christ is more important than where you land on these issues that are non-essentials, matters of indifference, gray areas, if you will. And, and one of my aims in this sermon is to encourage you, because I know that if you are, are anything like me, there have perhaps been times in your past that you have been unnecessarily hurt by people that have taken a matter of conscience and imposed it on you as a mark of Christian maturity. Oftentimes, these second, third, fourth tier issues, these matters of conscience can be weaponized and used to belittle Christians who have a, a differing viewpoint, and it can cause a lot of damage. So, so perhaps that's where you're at. I, I also want you to know that an aim I have in this sermon is to perhaps cause some self-examination that produces a Christ-centered humility because there might be some things where you and I are just wrong. I mean, there are times that maybe you catch yourself feeling like you're superior to another Christian because you choose not to partake in something that their conscience might permit them to engage in. And, and there are other times that you might look at another Christian and you say, really, like, they think that's a big deal? What this passage should do is form the heart of Christ in us toward others, making us humble, loving, and those who pursue unity. And finally, I hope this sermon causes you to look to Christ, the author and perfecter of all of our faith, because it was in our weakness that he used his strength to serve us. So the main point of this sermon is as follows. Love your neighbor as Christ has loved you by limiting your Christian liberty to pursue unity. 
this theme has been worked out for the past few chapters, ever since Romans 12 in the book of Romans, to love others, to love your neighbor as Christ has loved you. And how are we to do that? What is the specific exhortation that Paul gives? Limit your Christian liberty so that you can pursue unity with others. With that being said, let's read Romans 15, 1 through 7. God's word says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for your word. Jesus, we are thankful that you have welcomed us. Lord, that you are not only our motivation, but you are our model of loving others because you have loved us immeasurably. Lord, help us to hear from your word. Lord, help us to be obedient to it and to glorify your name. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, the first movement that I want you to see in this text is the exhortation. Paul here gives a command to build one another up. You see, at the beginning of chapter 15, Paul says, we who are strong, he's using that language of strong and weak again that we saw last week in matters of conscience. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Uh, that is, whenever you, you see the word failings, it's, it could also be translated the weaknesses of the weak or the sensitivities of the weak. Uh, those who are stronger in matters of conscience should be willing to limit their liberty for the good of another, to preserve unity, to build them up. Now, the matters that are mentioned in chapters 14 through 15 might not seem like they are that big of a deal to us. It's things like, should you observe Jewish holidays? Should you eat meat that was sacrificed to idols? But you have to understand that Paul is writing this letter to address some really hot-button issues that could have been potentially divisive. Uh, so this would have been the equivalent of someone, you know, getting a letter in June of 2020 and reading it publicly in our church that says, hey, some of you don't think that you should ever have to wear a mask. Others of you think that you should always wear a mask whenever you go out in public. Let's talk about it, right? We would have all been like, oh no, like this could get potentially dicey. Well, Paul, whenever he's writing about these issues, you know, meat that's been offered to idols, Jewish holidays, he, he's doing something similar, right? Because it needed to be addressed. He's not just trying to pique their curiosity. He's trying to snuff out the spark that could cause a wildfire of division in the church. And so here he he addresses food sacrifice to idols because most of the meat that was available to be purchased in the market had been sacrificed at one of the pagan temples in Rome. And so that was basically the only meat that you could find to eat. And so somebody who came from perhaps that Gentile pagan background 
remembers, you know, worshiping in those temples. And so their conscience would not permit them to, you know, eat a slab of meat that had been filleted by one of the priests at Aphrodite's temple. They're like, I, I remember that smell. I remember going there. Like, I just can't do that. Well, then you have some brothers and sisters who, uh, you know, came up in the Jewish faith and uh, then saw Christ as the coming Messiah, became Christians with a Jewish background. And they're like, you know, we have dietary restrictions that, you know, I, I know that, that Christ has declared all things free, but my conscience just won't permit me to do that. And then you have believers that were on the other end of the spectrum, and they would say, hey, in Matthew 15, 11, you know, Jesus says, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but what comes out of your mouth, because that's what really reveals what's going on in your heart. And so, you know what, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm clear to do this. And so here Paul is writing to a church that has some very diverse perspectives, but he wants them to be unified even with their differing opinions on these matters. Now, he writes in verse 1 that the strong should bear with the weak. And I think to really understand this passage, it's also helpful to consider some of the history that is at work here. Paul identifies himself as one of the strong. Now, we know that Paul was from a Jewish background, uh, but we also know that many of those who would have had a weaker conscience on some of these issues were from a Jewish background. Now, why would this have mattered so much? Well, if you look at history, you know that Claudius was the emperor of Rome, uh, kind of right before this time period. And in 49 AD, Claudius proclaimed that all Jews needed to be expelled from Rome. Well, why is that date significant, and why is that event so significant? Well, because the church in Rome was started uh, around Pentecost, all right? So we're thinking around 33 AD. We know that there were Romans that were present at the day of Pentecost. They received the Holy Spirit, and then they went back, and this church was not planted by one of the apostles, okay? So we can assume that the influence and leadership of the church in Rome was primarily Jewish, for about the first 15 years of that church's existence. So you would have had a lot of the dietary laws, a lot of the matters of conscience, uh, kind of in alignment with what those leaders would have held. Well, 49 AD comes about, and then all the Jews are expelled. Now you have the Gentile Christians that are left now stepping into areas of leadership, uh, primary areas of influence, and they would have undoubtedly had looser restrictions on some of these gray matters, if you will. Well, Paul is writing in 60 AD, and all of the Jews that were expelled from Rome were able to enter back into Rome around 59 AD. All right, so it's, it's very fresh that you now have the Jewish Christians who, you know, maybe, maybe were influential 15 years ago, or you have these Jewish Christians that were not in Rome now coming back into Rome, and then they, they're colliding with some of the viewpoints in second, third, and fourth tier issues that would be different from the way things were when they left or the way things, uh, you know, they kind of assumed that things should be. And so... I, I say all that because you and I, even though we, we might not experience the same tension, experience similar tensions in many of the issues that I addressed earlier. And so I want to give you seven principles briefly to help you navigate some of these things when it comes to matters of being weak or strong. The first is this. 
that matters of conscience are not inherently sinful. And I'm gonna run through these kind of fast, so if you need my notes, you know that they're in our weekly email every, every single week. Uh, but matters of the conscience are not inherently sinful. This, this means that your, your matters of conscience can't be something that is sinful. So you can't say, well, stealing is, for me, that's just a matter of conscience. No, it's not. That is a sin, you know. Uh, you can't say, you know, I, I know that I should go and make disciples, but ah, it's just kind of a matter of conscience I don't really feel that good about. It's like, no, that is a matter of obedience. Matters of conscience are those things that are not inherently sinful. They are amoral, if you will, non-essentials. But this isn't to say that matters of conscience are equivalent to moral relativism. So it's like, hey, whatever you think is a matter of conscience, it's just a matter of conscience for you. Whatever I think is a matter of conscience, it's just a matter of conscience for me. Uh, no, the, the items or issues that are matters of conscience are objectively matters of conscience. Here's another way of saying that. Matters of conscience are the same for every Christian, but not every Christian responds to them the same. So things that are matters of conscience, they're the same for every Christian, but not every Christian is going to respond to them the same. Second, your conscience should conform to Scripture, right? So your conscience submits to Scripture. Uh, I know that we have many people who are a part of our church that came from a Roman Catholic background, and perhaps because of that worldview, uh, being a part of Roman Catholicism, you'd say, you know, I, I, I'm glad that our church takes the Lord's Supper every week because, you know, growing up, I was taught that the Eucharist was a part of maintaining your righteous status before God, and so if, if I miss a Sunday and I don't get to do that, man, I just feel bad all week and things just go really wrong. And what we'd say is, hey, I, I understand where you're coming from, but that's, that's not a matter of conscience. That's actually a, a matter of, of misunderstanding. Let me remind you of, of the truth of the gospel, that your righteous standing is based upon Christ alone. And yes, we remember what Christ did, and we celebrate the Lord's presence with us through the Lord's Supper, but that is not a way to maintain your righteous standing before the Lord. Third, acting against your conscience is sinful. And the, Jimmy did a great job explaining this last week and at the end of chapter 14, verse 23. Uh, you shouldn't act against your conscience because that's called searing your conscience. And, and the more that you sear your conscience on gray issues, the closer you become to silencing your conscience on black and white issues, right? So if something feels wrong to you, don't, don't violate your conscience in that way. Fourth, your conscience can't be imposed on someone else. I have strong opinions about things, but... I don't preach matters of conscience. We want to major on the majors and minor on the minors. Uh, you know, if, if one of us is saying something that is a matter of conscience, we will do our best to tell you that if, if we're talking in those terms. Uh, but we don't impose our conscience on someone else. And uh, maybe, maybe you're asking a question like, well, if I'm discipling someone and they're asking me a question about a matter of conscience or even in parenting, whenever I think about, you know, sh like helping my child think through matters of the conscience, I would say that informing someone's conscience is not the same as imposing on someone's conscience. Uh, so you can, you know, with your kids, with discipling, ask good questions. Give biblical principles that help shape the conscience. Uh, you know, I mean, I think about my life. Uh, for the early years of my life, my conscience had a name, and it was Tammy Kirkland, and she told me everything that I should or should not do, right? She was like, hey, don't do that. Don't hit. You know, say yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Like, it was like, okay, like, these are rules, and this is, this is the way that I live. And then as I got older, it was like more 
principial, love people, you know, be patient, respect others. And it's like, okay. And as you're, I mean, if you're a parent or as you're discipling someone, you, you grow from like the, you know, hey, this is, just, this is just the way that things need to be and this is how you need to act and then helping them think through wisdom on cultural issues or moderation or, hey, if, if this was to happen, you know, uh, what do you think that you should do? So that as, as your child grows up or as the person that you're discipling doesn't, you know, isn't able to, to call you on the phone and say, hey, what should I do here? You're, you're able to give them the tools that they need to then think through those things and have a well-informed conscience without you. Fifth, uh, matters of conscience can mistakenly become a measure of maturity. Uh, once again, I, I don't need to rehash what Jimmy said last week, but um, you, can be, you can have a weak conscience on an issue and be very mature in the faith. Um, you can also have a really strong conscience in regards to an issue, and then that can be a, a matter of immaturity where you need to grow. So that's not necessarily a one-to-one. Six, differences of conscience shouldn't lead to division. Difference in, in, difference in conscience shouldn't lead to division. There's a great quote by Augustine where he says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity, right? In, in essentials, in those things like the bodily resurrection of Christ and salvation by grace alone, in those things, in the, in the essentials, unity is a must. In non-essentials, there's liberty, there's, there's freedom. And in all things, be charitable. A- another way to say this is, on some things, it's more important to be right than it is to be together. Right? The Bible says this, this is right. This is an issue worth dividing over. There's, there are other issues where it's more important to be together than it is to be right. Your view of the end times, you know, uh, your, your stance on you know, listening to a certain style of music. Seventh, finally, when differences arise, the strong should serve the weak. So whenever there's a stalemate, whenever it seems like you're at an impasse with somebody who differs on one of these indifferent matters, what do you do? The strong, the person with the stronger conscience gives way to the weaker brother or sister in an attempt to serve them, to preserve unity, and to bear with their weakness. That's what verse 1 says. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. It's very clear. We don't, we don't have to argue with Scripture here. God tells us what to do. Now, here's an important note of, of clarification. You can bear with one another's weakness without sharing in one another's weakness. So this doesn't mean that you have to now, you know, acquiesce to their viewpoint. You don't have to say, okay, now I'm assuming that like, if this is, if this is your viewpoint here, then now I'm taking it as my own. No, it's just saying that in that person's presence for, uh, you know, a period of time that you would abstain from whatever practice that is, or, you know, maybe just kind of not be a part of that conversation or just say, you know, I know whenever we talk about this TV show around this person, then it makes them uneasy, and we're just not going to have that conversation uh, when this person is around, not to, not to exclude them, but because we want to include them. And the interesting thing is that we all have issues in which our conscience is strong on, and we all have issues on which our conscience is weak. I think that was one of the helpful distinctions that Jimmy made as we were walking through Romans 14 is that you are not the same across the board whenever it comes to strength or weakness in matters of conscience. 
And so in the areas that we are strong, what are we to do? We are to bear with the failings of the weak, to bear in the sensitivities of one another. Galatians 6.2 says something similar. It says, bear one another's burdens. It's not like, oh, I'm like tolerating this person. No, I'm, you're bearing one another's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ. Now, why do we do this? Because Christ bears with us. Whenever we look at Matthew 8, 17, we read that Jesus took our illnesses upon himself, that he bore our weakness. Consider the past week that you've had. This is really humbling for me. Think about how many times that you've been impatient. Think about how many times you yourself have been an obstruction to unity. And consider how patient Christ has been to you. In that moment of quick temper and exhaustion, in that moment of imposing unreasonable standards, that Christ would bear with you. Let that be instructive as you seek to bear with one another. And in doing this, our aim is not to please ourselves. That's what verse 1 says that our aim is to not please ourselves. What does it look like to please ourselves? It is to enjoy a Christian liberty at the expense of someone else. To please ourselves is to choose division over honoring someone else's weakness and just be like, you know what, I'm not texting that person to hang out because every time I do, I feel like there's another way that I'm stepping on their toes. No, it's to say, hey, I wanna be sensitive to, to you so that I can build you up. This is echoed in the positive command that comes in verse two. To build one another, another up, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. We're not just people pleasers whenever it says please your neighbor. No, this is synonymous with pleasing your neighbor for their good and for the purpose of building them up in the faith. Now, I'm anticipating that perhaps you have the same question that we wrestled with in our missional community group this week. Um, I want to publicly thank our missional community group for helping me write this sermon this week. I was just like peppering you guys with questions, so, so thank you so much. Because we, we asked the question, well, what keeps you from just becoming like, you know, the, the baseline is the lowest common denominator of the weakest conscience in the room? Right? Like if, if we're seeking to love one another and to bear with one another's burdens and to set our liberty aside for the good of one another, um, I think we have to consider what is for someone's good and how we build someone up. So as I mentioned earlier, there, there might be matters of conscience that are also matters of discipleship. Where you just say, brother, sister, I, like, I, I, know, I, I know you're weighted down by this. Um, can, can I ask you a couple questions by that? Or can I, can I just talk to you about this? And, and you might find that someone has a view that is coming from like a misunderstanding of scripture, or you, or you might find that uh, there was a moment in someone's past where, you know, they, they took a wrong turn or from their family background, and they're just like, that's why I don't do this thing. And so it becomes a matter of discipleship. This requires a lot of communication to know where someone might be weak or strong and to come alongside them and say, hey, regardless of where you fall in this issue, I'm gonna walk with you in this. Because our aim is to build one another up. We should all be discipling someone. We should all have someone pouring into us. And, and second, I think it's important to know that perhaps we could go um, a little far when it comes to these kind of things. And uh, by, by thinking, okay, I'm just gonna, any, anytime this person has an issue, we're just gonna, I'm not gonna talk about it, we're just gonna, you know, 
well, that thing's off the table. Uh, well, we want to act in a way that is for someone's good. So if, if someone is able to just say, that offends me, that offends me, that offends me, that offends me, and then we're just kind of always walking around on eggshells, uh, then perhaps at that point we're enabling a person to be controlling or manipulative, and we're also trying to invite them into a relationship with the Lord where they're pursuing unity and where they're seeking to love one another. And I think that's where we just have to say, loving your neighbor and pursuing, pursuing unity is, a lot, is hard work, but it is worth it. And how are we to pursue such uh, a difficult work at times? It is by looking to our example, which is Christ. Look at verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The second movement in this passage is our example. The example is Christ. Consider how Christ has served you in your weakened state. Uh, Verse 3 is now directing our attention to Christ, who didn't please himself. Why shouldn't you seek to please yourself in these situations? Because Christ did not please himself. Uh, Paul here is creating a contrast. And and what he is saying, here's, here's Paul's logic. If Jesus was able to leave heaven, take on flesh, endure the suffering that you and I endure as a human being, then to be betrayed, taken, hung on a cross, to absorb the wrath of God for the sin of mankind, and then die in your place. If Jesus could do all of that for you in your weakened state, then you can give up some of your Christian liberty on non-essential issues occasionally for the good of others. And you're like, wow, Paul, that is a really good argument. If Christ, who is the strong one, who is stronger than Jesus, nobody's stronger than Jesus, and yet he with his strength served us in our weakened state, who is weaker than us? No one. We're hopelessly weak apart from Christ. And if he could extend that kind of love, grace, and mercy to us, the strong bearing with the weak, then those who have a strong conscience can bear with the weak among us. This particular quotation comes from Psalm 69, 9. Uh, And this psalm is a messianic psalm that is quoted in uh, all throughout the New Testament. I think it's the the second most often quoted psalm. And it's speaking of David. uh, Whenever he is worshiping the Lord, he's zealous for the Lord's worship. And what he says is the reproaches of those who reproached you, God, even in your covenant faithfulness, those who reproached you also fell upon me because I was seeking to do your will. Now that that is applied to Christ by Paul, who endures reproach on our behalf, not to please himself, but to build us up. If Christ's aim was to please himself, 
He would have kept his identity and purpose hidden. If, if Christ's aim was to please himself, he would not have taken our place on the cross. But because his aim was not to please himself, but to please the Father who is in heaven and to love us in our weakened state, he bore the reproach that you and I deserved. After Paul makes this reference to Psalm 69, he then gives us a principle in verse four that uh, almost acts as kind of a sidebar, and yet he's saying this is why it's so helpful to reflect on passages like Psalm 69. This is why it is so helpful that God has revealed himself through his word. Because he says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You see, the Lord has given us his word for our instruction so that, so that we would be able to endure suffering and difficulty, so that we would have encouragement whenever our hearts are discouraged, so that our hope would be found unshakable in Christ. This is good news, especially on matters of conscience. Whenever we're saying, you know, Lord, how should I handle this? What should I do here? What, what word should I speak? Well, we have God's word for our instruction. Uh, every few weeks or so, I will notice that the, the time on my watch is either a little bit fast or a little bit slow. And whenever that happens, I have to recalibrate my watch because what I will find is if I'm unaware that my watch is off of a few minutes one way or the other, then I will rush into meetings saying, I'm, I'm so sorry that I'm late whenever actually I had a few minutes to spare. Or I'll show up with, you know, to an appointment with somebody and be five minutes late and have no idea, not say sorry for it, and, you know, it makes me look like a fool. But whenever I calibrate my watch to the universal time that we all use, then I, I don't have that same kind of pressure thinking I'm late. I don't have the same kind of carelessness thinking that I'm on time. And whenever it comes to matters of conscience, our hearts, our conscience needs to be constantly calibrated uh, so that there aren't matters in which we're saying, yes, my righteousness is based on this, and because of this or because I didn't do this, I'm right or wrong with God. And also so that there aren't things that are just like, yeah, I just have a really strong conscience about this. And it's like, no, you're actually sinful in this, and you need to consider it more seriously. Our conscience needs to be calibrated. And praise be to God that he gives us his word that we might be instructed by it, and so that our hearts can submit to it. And, and where is our hope grounded? Where do we find this encouragement? How do we endure? Because ultimately the scriptures point us to Christ. This is why Jesus said in John 5 to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they who point to me. Your endurance comes from looking at the faithfulness of God to you in the person of Christ. What greater encouragement do you need than the truths that Brad relayed earlier that Christ is the one who says, come all to me who are heavy and weary laden and I will give you rest. What greater hope do you need than being able to flip through these pages and become an eyewitness to the empty tomb and to receive the promise that you are now a partaker of eternal life? 
You see, with the words that Paul gives us here, we come to Scripture realizing that we can't just use the Bible for intellectual exercise. This is not just for academic study. No, God makes his presence known through his word. He consoles us. He comforts us. He corrects us, both for our good and for his glory. And what does this produce in the church? It produces unity. Third, the expression. Pray for unity and pursue the unity that God provides. The expression of this love made known to us in Christ is the unity that is only made possible in the church of Christ. Whenever we look at verses 5 through 6, we see that Paul shifts into a prayer, saying, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. He says if there is to be unity in the church, God must grant it. It can't be manufactured by just you know, coming together with our common interests. Unity is a gift from God, and it is God who preserves it. We should follow Paul's example and pray for unified elders, pray for unified leaders, pray for unified marriages, pray for unified families, pray for unified missional community groups, pray for unified churches throughout our entire city and globe, because only God can do this. And so Paul is saying, hey, here's some practical application about unity, but let's pray that God would give unity. Because if God doesn't grant it, it's not happening. That's why Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, as our Oaks students learned this morning. Jesus prayed in John 17. We pray. Jesus said, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one, Father. And how will we know that this prayer is answered? We see it in verse 6. That together with, that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Could Paul be using a metaphor here? Sure. With one voice you would glorify God, that you would, you would live in such harmony. But I think he's also pointing to the reality of the church gathered and saying, you know what? Whenever we know that your conscience permitted you to eat different things for dinner last night, but you're all gathering together with one voice to praise God and take communion together, the Lord is glorified. That is an uncommon unity that can only be found in the Christian community that God establishes a unity in Christ. And there's harmony formed. And whenever there's harmony, I mean, we heard several of our vocalists singing harmony this morning. When you sing harmony, it doesn't mean that you're all singing the same note. That's to sing in unison. When you sing harmony, you're singing in the same key, different notes that are a part of the same chord so that whenever all voices come together, it's richer and fuller. In the same way, we glorify God with one voice to exalt him. Fourth and final movement, the exaltation. Glorify God by welcoming one another. Now, verse 7 acts as a transition to next week, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. But it is worth noting that Paul says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why would Paul spend so much time on matters that we would consider non-essentials? Why? Because of the way that you relate to one another in non-essential matters actually reveals the way that you view the gospel, which is the most essential matter. The way that you welcome one another, the way that you relate to one another actually depicts and displays the way that you believe Christ has welcomed you. Because you should welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. This word for welcoming one another is the same as accepting one another. 
And this was a message for every person in the Roman church and for every person in this room. Consider where we were when Christ welcomed us. We were dead in our sin. We were on a path headed for hell. We were completely deserving of judgment because we had rebelled against God. Every single one of us had fallen short of the glory of God and broken his commands. We were unwelcome in the presence of God, unable to do enough good deeds to climb our way to God. But what did God do? God sent his son to us. Not that, not that somehow we would be able to go to him, but so that he would come for us, that he would take our place on the cross. And that in the power of his resurrection, after defeating sin, Satan, and death, he would invite us to take a seat at the Father's table. That those who were once orphaned and enemies of God could be welcomed as sons and daughters. So whether you are weak or you are strong in matters of conscience, you were once hopelessly weak apart from God when Christ saved you. And the weak have a great high priest who is Christ, which is why Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Because we have one who sympathizes with our weaknesses, we can find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. And if Christ has welcomed us like that, we can welcome one another. If you ever watch a professional baseball game, you'll notice that when each player takes their turn at bat, there is a song. It's their walk-up song. It plays throughout the stadium. And it's typically their favorite song. It doesn't matter uh, what their teammates think about that song. It doesn't matter what the rest of the people in the stadium think about that song. There is their song that is playing and it is playing for them. Now, contrast that to the Olympics. And what do you see? You see athletes from different places, economic statuses, they're experts, yes, but all in different sports. And whenever they walk up, what place? The national anthem. One song. All unified under one song. Even whenever they win the gold and take the podium, they are clothed in the flag of the country that they represent. And there is one song that is playing because they are accomplishing something. They are representing something that is far bigger than themselves. They are representing a nation, and it is the United States. Because they recognize that unity isn't about them. That, that unity is about loving one another. That, that we don't seek our own attention or our own preferences, but the good of one another, and to make God known. You see, as, as Christians, we want to reflect the love that Christ has shown us we want to reflect love to our neighbor as the Lord has first loved us. So may we consider this passage. May we love others as Christ has first loved us. Let's pray.